Welcome to Faith and Freedom Fighters. I'm Robert Muse, co-founder and senior counsel of the American Freedom Law Center. And as usual, I'm joined by my fellow freedom fighter, co-founder and senior counsel, David Urashami. You know, it's good to be back with you again after a two-week hiatus. Today is Friday, September 10th, 2021. We typically record on a Thursday, but yesterday I was in Grand Rapids, Michigan, picking a jury uh, for a trial scheduled next Friday. I'm defending four courageous Red Rose rescuers who are each charged with one count of criminal trespass for their actions last May at an abortion center in the city of Grand Rapids. Uh, stay tuned for an update on that case following uh, the jury trial next Friday. As I noted, today is September 10th, 2021. And 20 years ago tomorrow, Islamic terrorists, guided by fundamental principles of Sharia-mandated jihad against infidels, attacked U.S. soil and killed thousands of innocent American civilians. Right, We all have pictured in our minds the planes going into the Twin Towers in New York, and uh, into the Pentagon. And then there was that failed attempt in uh, Pennsylvania where some courageous uh, passengers uh, helped to thwart that terrorist attack. But that was not the end of the attack against our homeland. It was really it was just the beginning. On September 11th, 2012, if you recall, Islamic jihadists stormed the U.S. Embassy in Benghazi, Libya, and brutally murdered four Americans, including the U.S. ambassador. That was under the Obama watch. 2009, homegrown Islamic terrorist Army Major Nadal Hassan killed 13 innocent people in cold blood while shouting Allah Akbar at Fort Hood, Fort Hood in Texas. I believe Obama referred to that as uh, workplace violence. At the Boston Marathon, we witnessed the work of Islamic jihadists, two brothers who killed and maimed innocent American women and children simply because they were infidels. Islamic jihadists engaged in terrorist attacks in Garland, Texas, San Bernardino, California, Orlando, Florida, Chattanooga, Tennessee, and elsewhere. And our European allies have been the targets of multiple attacks as well. Now, just last month, we had two suicide bombers and a gunman attacked the crowds of Afghans flocking to Kabul's airport, transforming what was already a scene of chaotic desperation into one of horror in the final days of a horribly executed airlift for those fleeing the Taliban takeover of Afghanistan. That attack killed at least 90, likely more, Afghans and 13 U.S. troops. Afghanistan will now be a sanctuary for terrorists to launch attacks against American targets, thanks to the absolute incompetence of the Biden administration. So the threat is far from over, which is why we must never forget what happened on 9-11-2001. And I fear with everything that happened in Afghanistan and the weakness of this administration that, uh, that we're going to see a, uh, a continuation of these attacks against American targets. David, welcome. I'm sure you have some thoughts to share on 9-11 and where we stand today, and particularly in light of the Afghanistan debacle. Uh, and don't you love how this, you know, this inept administration is now calling on the Taliban to have an inclusive government. That's what they're concerned about. I mean, this administration, they're, they're pathetic, but they're dangerously, it's da- how da- I mean, dangerously so that they're pathetic. David, your thoughts on all of this? Well, we certainly shouldn't be surprised by the Biden administration. I think any patriotic American, and certainly those of us who lived through 9-11 as adults with a conscious memory of that time. Understand September 11th tomorrow to be a solemn day and a day of introspection. It happens to be the Sabbath, the Jewish Sabbath, Shabbat, between Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year, and Yom Kippur, the Jewish Day of Atonement, where we fast for 25 hours and do repentance. In fact, the 10 days from Rosh Hashanah through Yom Kippur are the 10 days of repentance. Our prayers are longer. We're focusing on um, improving ourselves. Um, And this particular Sabbath is called Shabbat Shuvah, the Sabbath of repentance. And its focus is on just that. And for me, and I think many 
observant Jews around the United States and around the world, we will include within that Sabbath of repentance our own introspection on um, 9-11 and what it means to us. And I include not just the thousands who died, uh, who were murdered in those events, but also the thousands that have been affected of first responders who went to the scene and put their lives at risk, breathing toxic fumes. Um, I personally know of many members of the uh, Jewish Hatzalah, the kind of private ambulance service that raced to from Brooklyn into the city to provide their help and their ambulances and their equipment. The real problem, of course, and this is the introspection that we should all be having now, is pre-9-11, and in fact, post-9-11, the problem has consistently been that the United States is not prepared to understand that a large part of the Muslim world, and dare we say not all, but the Sharia adherent, the religiously devout that abide by Islamic law are all at war with the infidel world. It's Dar al-Harab, the realm of war. And that's simply not questionable. That's from their own literature, their own speeches, their own text. Right, and, and let me just wait. And you pointing that out uh, always puts us on this hate list of the Council of American Islamic Relations, which is a Muslim Brotherhood front group in the Southern Poverty Law Center, who they, these guys are, are complicit in, uh, in, in propagating this, uh, you know, this, you know, these, these attacks against us and anyone who would, who would call out this, uh, this threat. Right. And of course, they also claim the only thing to learn from 9-11 is we have to prevent Islamophobia from folks like us. And they then go on to talk about the danger of white supremacists. Well, apparently, um, it's perfectly fine to identify the race and the ideology of white supremacists as the enemy. But when it comes to identifying the jihadists, the Islamic terrorists, the Sharia adherent, um, then it's somehow a morally reprehensible act. But if you don't know your enemy, and the reason why we must know our enemy is the famous Worth theorist. Sun Tzu. Sun Tzu <laughs> teaches us. Is it, you, if you don't know your enemy, then you don't know what motivates your enemy. To know your enemy is not just to shake hands and know what he looks like. It's to understand what ideology or belief system or theory of the world drives him or her to engage in war, to put their lives at risk, to win a battle. Because if you don't know what motivates them, then you can never understand what it's going to take to defeat them. Because as we know from the other famous war theorist out of Austria, Clausewitz, war is won based upon the ability, the material ability to bring the war to your enemy, the resources available, and the will to fight. Those are the two components. Without one or the other, the United States has the greatest resources in the world. But as we all know, with a bit of news and social media, we no longer have the will to fight. Now, having said that, the problem in the United States, and it was true pre 9-11, where we treated terrorism as a kind of criminal act and it wasn't involved with Islam, to the post 9-11 Bush II era, in which the first things out of the man's mouth after 9-11, after the Bush doctrine about preemptive war, if you're either you're with us or you're against us, we're gonna come after the terrorists. The very next, which was a good statement, the very next thing out of his mouth was, this is not a war involving Islam. This is a war against radicals. This is a war against those who would corrupt Islam. And that's false. Sharia adherent Islam, the Islam with any pedigree going back to the so-called prophet Muhammad, that is the Islam followed by the global jihadist. A kind of peace-loving Islam, while it's 
certainly notable and, and, and plaudible is simply not the Islam practiced by the jihadists. And it's not the Islam with any pedigree. It has no real history to it. And there's been reform movements in Islam over the centuries that have come and mostly gone. For example, the golden era of Islam with all the universities and the intellectual um, uh, efforts and in, in um, neo-Aristotelian thought, et cetera, those got pushed aside by the Sharia adherent Muslims. And it's not, it's not dominant in the Muslim world. So that's number one. And, and we're right back at that. We're right back at um, this notion of um, uh, this is not about Islam. This is about, you know, radicals or terrorists or uh, what was the term again that Obama used? Uh, uh, extreme, but uh, extremism or something along those lines. I don't remember what it was. Um, the, and, and that is really the issue. Um, and as we move forward, the fact that um, you can't talk about Islam with everything that we've heard about Afghanistan, there's not a single word about the driving ideology, the theory behind their war, the Taliban, ISIS, Al-Qaeda, which of course, to your latter point, Rob, is the absolute stupidity and um, criminal willful blindness by the Biden administration, which is not new. It was under every administration previously that somehow the Taliban is different than ISIS or Al-Qaeda. Um, it's not. It follows exactly the same Sharia. They might use different tactical tools to achieve their end, but they want a global caliphate and they want the destruction of Western civilization. Yeah, and, and this, as I, you know, as I mentioned, and just to highlight the, the willful blindness, and, and I agree, this is criminal <laughs> willful blindness, the very idea that, you know, the State Department said, well, you know, we're going to send them a strongly worded letter and demand that they have an inclusive government. I mean, it's just, are they, sh I mean, you see the videos and stuff coming out of uh, Afghanistan now where they're whipping women in the streets who, who dare to protest or dare to, I mean, women are second-class citizens if, at best under, uh, under Islamic law. And it's just, you know, this left wing, you know, they want to, they want to uh, export all this nonsense that they're, they're trying to ingrain in our universities over there. And they're just not having any bit of it because it doesn't, it doesn't fit within their, within their, you know, the, 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 um, their religious code. And, and, and nobody should be surprised to see what we're seeing going on in Afghanistan right now. And unfortunately we, we probably shouldn't be surprised if we start seeing these um, these terrorists starting acting up again. Right. Because when, you know, when Trump when Trump came in, one thing they do acknowledge and recognize is strength and power. And when Trump came in and he crushed that caliphate in ISIS, all of a sudden you started seeing these like lone wolf jihadists and things kind of, you know, th those things were, were quelled. Why? Because they they didn't have this this fire of, uh, look, we, the caliphate is, you know, there's a legitimate caliphate that's now being built up again. You see that the Taliban are doing victory parades, parading around in equipment, billions of dollars of military equipment that we left behind. Make no mistake, the Islamic world, and I'm talking about the jihadists and these enemies of, are looking at what happened in Afghanistan is a huge victory against the great Satan, the United States, right? This prolific military power. And here you have these uh, Taliban, um, you know, uh, jihadists kicking us out, out of, their, out of their country. They see this as a huge victory. That is gonna motivate, it's gonna motivate these jihadists all around the world. And I, it's, it's, it's frightening. But I would be absolutely, it, it wouldn't be surprising to me at all if we started seeing more of these, uh, you know, these homegrown uh, attacks now, uh, you know, propping up and not to mention attacks on embassies and, and like the USS Cole, you know, ships overseas and other American, uh, other American interests being, uh, being targeted by jihadists. That's going to be the fallout, right? And, and uh, you know, here Biden, he wanted to have everybody out because he wanted to kind of raise the victory flag uh, in Afghanistan in, in time for the 20th anniversary of 9-11. And quite frankly, just the opposite has happened. The Taliban flag is raised now over, you know, over the government in the, over in uh, Afghanistan. If I'm not mistaken, that flag's now flying over the former U.S. embassy 
in Afghanistan. I don't think we even have an embassy there anymore. I mean, this is it, it's it couldn't have been any worse uh, than if you, uh, you know, to script it out than what this administration has done. They're absolutely inept, incompetent. And so are the generals. And, you know, I, at the end of the day, you, right, we have a civilian controlled military. But like that lieutenant colonel who was uh, who was relieved of his command and, and I believe he was even separated from the military who dared to speak out. Wondering, you know, where are the general officers taking their ranks off their calls and throwing them down on the table and saying, you know, this withdrawal is asinine. Why do we give up a strategic airfield, pull out the military before we get all the Americans out? It makes zero sense. And we're going to rely on the Taliban for our perimeter security? Seriously? And you didn't think that there was going to be suicide bombers that were going to kill? You know, in this case, we had, you know, there were 12 Marines and a corpsman and 90 plus Afghans that were killed by this uh, suicide bomber who happened to make his way through the Afghanistan security. Oh, oops. How did that happen? You got to be kidding me. I mean, somebody and nobody's nobody's resigning. Nobody's being fired over this. This is a travesty. I just uh, and, and I know all the military veterans that I know that I've spoken to have, you know, having served 13 years in the, in the Marine Corps. They are very angry about all of this and they should be and they should be. Well, you know, there's a lot to be said on those points. And let me just say this. The Washington Post, and we mentioned this, I think, at the last podcast, but the Washington Post, which is a Jeff Bezos rag now, it's a, it's, it's a leftist mouthpiece. It's, it's not even the Washington Post of my day and Watergate. This is a Washington Post left-wing mouthpiece. They published a report, um, and the Biden administration did not deny it, that the Taliban offered the U.S. military during the pullout to remain control of Bagram and Kabul. And as military analysts have said, we could have maintained control of Bagram and a corridor. We didn't have to maintain this huge urban area, which is difficult to be sure, but we could have maintained Bagram and a corridor into the civilian air base and had both air bases. Bagram is huge and had all of the equipment, um, but the US government um, said, no, we just need the airport. And that has led, and Rob, as you know, we've been approached by Christian groups, um, aid workers, Christian aid workers who were in Afghanistan to protect Christians about groups left behind that it's been reported in the media. Um, and, and they were being denied State Department clearances so that their own private planes with former special ops folks could get in and get them out the State Department was giving them and the DOD was giving them nothing but runarounds. And um, latest reports are that some of those efforts are paying off now, but with no help from the U.S. government, these people have been left on their own. U.S. citizens, there for good and valid reasons. You know, and the argument that the, the State Department came out with, well, we gave warnings to these people to to, to leave. Well, you know, you get warnings if you visit Israel during a terrorist attack to leave. And more importantly, many of these Christian aid workers protecting other Christians from the slaughter of Muslims and the enslavement and the rape of Muslims on these Christians were in villages that you just didn't have communications. What was the State Department doing? Sending them a, a carrier pigeon? I mean, it's absurd to say that they were warning American citizens. All that being said, the, the, the fundamental issue is not that Rob and I are here claiming that, you know, you need to have a, uh, a forever war. Um, the, what we saw in Afghanistan, we saw in Iraq, uh, and we, we saw initially in Vietnam, and that is this idea that if you get into a hostile country and you can beat up on your enemy militarily, then you can go to the civilian population and somehow um, entice them to embrace your Western civilization that's fundamentally based upon two precepts, liberty and prosperity, i.e. democracy and capitalism, a marketplace economies. And the reality is the Muslim world doesn't embrace en, en masse those two principles. And when Bush II came in, and tried to engage in nation building in Iraq, he lost that case dramatically. 
And even General Petraeus's counterinsurgency, which is a kind of modification of nation building, it is, let's go in and kind of cut deals and throw money around and buy off the tribal chiefs and, 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 and get the sympathies and the empathies of, of the local folks with a lot of money and education and so forth. And we can entice them to help us in counterinsurgency to where we can bring a level of the, the level of violence down to where it's essentially nominal. But that doesn't work either because it's still based upon the premise that you can somehow get the civilian population to continue to embrace your view of the world once you even stop throwing money around and it doesn't happen. And that was the problem in Afghanistan. Afghanistan warped from going after the Taliban and Al-Qaeda to nation building. And I'll let Rob as the military man speak more to the question of how you can deal with these Islamic hotspots, these war zones where they're using them as bases. Um, but the idea that this now being that, you know, counterinsurgency was the term uh, uh, de jour of the Bush two administration. Now, what is the Biden term de jour? Over the horizon, right? Over the horizon defenses that somehow we can we can keep our bases and our ships and everything, you know, based out of uh, the Far East or or Europe. And we can somehow reach over the horizon. Well, we were at the Bagram Air Force and we couldn't reach over the next hill to do the job necessary in Afghanistan. Well, I think, it, you know, any uh, McCarthy, a good friend, we mention him all the time. He, he's been writing about this, about the Afghan. And I agree, you know, these forever wars and, you know, you see all these commercials, um, wounded warriors and things. You see all these, you know, these these men and women who literally have left pieces of their lives and in their bodies over there in Afghanistan. And you always like, you know, for what purpose? You know, I think there is a, a national strategic um, interest in counterterrorism. And this over the horizon is only good if you have if you have eyes on the ground, right? You need to have the intelligence to be able to attack with these drone strikes, to be able to attack effectively with these airstrikes. And you know, having some semblance of a presence there in Afghanistan, not to nation build. But to have you know a, a base or some some operation there, and, I, and unlike you know, I, we certainly we have you know troops still in Germany, troops in you know Korea, um, at the DMZ, and and all those things. Those places are a little bit different though, right? Because you're not going to have these um, these constant like terror attacks on the perimeter like you would likely get in Afghanistan. So there is there is a you know a unique uh, aspect about having boots on the ground as it were in Afghanistan. But, you know, that's, I think that is in our strategic interest. It doesn't need to be, you know, what we've been doing and with this nation building and everything else, which is causing, you know, troops to get, you know, killed by the IEDs and everything else all around. But some sort of, the, the over the horizon, it, it's always been, you know, through history. If you don't have eyes on the ground and you're not getting intelligence from the ground, then these airstrikes, these drone strikes, they're not effective. So, and I don't, you know, I, you know, we're not privy to the, to the intelligence and the information and everything else to, to make these, uh, you know, to, to be able to say exactly what the plan should be. I mean, we're just, we're just not, we don't have that information available to us, but from a broader perspective, I think we, there is a counterterrorism mission that could be accomplished there. And, you know, how do you accomplish that? Again, it's going to be depending on, on what the, uh, the facts are. And, you know, you mentioned Clausewitz. You know, he always said, you know, famously said, war is a continuation of policy by other means. And it always starts with policy. If we don't have a good policy, you know, in terms of what it is that we want to accomplish in Afghanistan, what the actual limited objective is and how we're going to accomplish that, it always falls apart. And, and that's what we saw uh, currently. But to say that there, we don't have an interest in Afghanistan, we do because it's going to be a place where jihadists now can can launch attacks from they're going to have a safe harbor a safe base they're going to have a government that supports you know the actions that they that they're going to be engaging in and and again i, I will not be surprised if we don't see uh an increase now in proliferation of terrorist attacks which under trump was it was pretty silent but it, we're going to see it again so there is a counterterrorism, i think mission uh, for Afghanistan, what that is. Um, again, I don't have enough facts to know, but the over the horizon, you know, I looked at them as like 400 miles from the coast. So even to have Marines stationed there to be able to go in and do an attack, I mean, that's, that is, that's just, you know, too much. 
Right. So and I, I, it's it's going to be. I don't know. We'll, we'll wait and see. History will will uh, will will show. Um, you know whether it was a mistake to pull out like we did from Afghanistan, and unfortunately, I think it was. Well, I don't want to pretend to be prescient, but I think that um, history and the knowing our enemy, their theology, uh, informs us as follows. We do have a national security interest, I agree 100%. And then how you do that, certainly not nation building or counterinsurgency, but you need to have that intel. Um, the reality is um, what's going to happen in Afghanistan is that that part of the Taliban that's interested in accessing the billions of dollars that are sitting in accounts that the US and the Western governments threw at the previous Afghanistan government, they want that money. They would like to consolidate power and they would like to try to govern under Sharia Afghanistan. And they, as individuals with a vested interest in power, like everyone else, even though they're Sharia adherent and they should be um, uh, focused on the same global caliphate goal as all the other jihadists, they will be more inclined to say, well, it's a tactical question. We need to first consolidate power. But then there's going to be groups in the Taliban that are going to be more pure to heart. And they also know that they're going to be outside the government circle, the guys that can accumulate massive wealth. And they're going to adhere to the more Sharia jihadist version. And they're going to be looking outward. And how are they going to do that? They're going to look inward at ISIS, at Al-Qaeda, and many other groups. And they're going to say, um, we need to consolidate our own little sultanates within Afghanistan. So you're going to see a lot of internecine battles, uh, you know, civil war, as it were. Um, it's not a civil war because we don't have a civil structure in place over there. It's anarchy. But you're going to have those who are going to be far more Sharia purist, and they're going to go to battle against the less purist who have access to the Afghanistan government power and money and so forth. And then you're going to have those who are going to be successful because the Afghan, the Taliban as a government is not going to be able, they don't have the resources or the skill or the network to control all of the various elements of Taliban. Remember, the Taliban is not a single tribe or clan. It is a network of clans and tribes that have their own power structure, their own hierarchy. And their leader, their paternal figure, their head of household, as it were, and each of these groups is going to carve out its own opiate industry its own kidnapping industry, its own terrorist industry. And Al-Qaeda and ISIS and other like-minded groups, those aren't the only two, including parts of the Haqqani network, are going to find the most hospitable environment within Afghanistan to do over-the-horizon attacks on the U.S. and Western um, targets, including Europe. So. There's no question that this is a national security interest. And I, I can almost guarantee that this Afghanistan is going to be an absolutely virulent hotbed of internal violence and external jihad, guaranteed. And it's going to destabilize the region and it's going to destabilize the globe. And um, my guess is, Pakistan and Iran um, as two major players, neighbors, maybe Turkey, are going to go in at some point, because they're going to have to, to try to stabilize at least that part of Afghanistan that borders on their territory. Because remember, these terrorists are going to flood from Afghanistan to Pakistan to Iran into Turkey and even into um, uh, many of the former Soviet republics that border. So it's going to be a problem. And um, it's not going to go away and it's not going to get better. And anyone who thinks it is, it simply shows that they don't understand the driving theory behind the enemy, knowing your enemy. 
the, the operational dogma that drives them, and that's Sharia. And they're, they're not going to become uh, heretics overnight and, and disavow all of Islamic law. It's just not going to happen. You know, one other thing to, to point out, and I think, a, I think I read somewhere that there was, um, you know, of these, these new leaders of the Afghan government, I think four of the top leaders there um, were at one time prisoners in Gitmo. Um, that uh, that Obama released in exchange for uh, uh, Bergdahl, the uh, was essentially uh, somebody who was a, a traitor, and I, th- I think he was later uh, actually court-martialed. So we yeah. trade Bo, Bo Bergdahl. I think it was five uh, five uh, detainees in Gitmo. Four of them now are, are, are running the uh, the uh, the Taliban um, terrorist network over there, their, their government. Unbelievable. These, they just, you know, uh, and, that, and that problem at the time, to be fair to Obama, who made the deal, it wasn't absolutely clear, although there was certainly evidence that Bergdahl had deserted his post and went um, AWOL or was an actual traitor and had joined the Taliban. Um, but the real problem is this idea that um, of exchanging um a U.S. soldier for these four high-value terrorists who are now very much a part of the Taliban leadership. Um, Israel does the same thing. Now, they do it on the principle that we don't leave anyone behind. We don't even leave dead bodies. And Israel has exchanged with many That's of same, them. Same for the U.S. military. I got to tell you, as right. a Marine, you would never leave anybody behind, even, a, even a, right. a, a dead Marine. You do everything you can to get them which is part of what's infuriating right. so, about what's going right. on. So the idea, even a body. So the idea that you would give over your prisoners to get back live soldiers or even their corpses. Um, that's been a longstanding principle with Israel. Um, and so, uh, you know, the idea that you don't negotiate with terrorists, well, um, we see that that's not the case. And I'm not, I'm not weighing in on that morally or, or, strategically one way or the other. Um, but the fact is, is that um, many of the Gitmo detainees that we've released prematurely without that kind of deal, right? Under Obama, his goal was to try to empty out Gitmo and Biden's continuing that. And so they literally went around begging countries to take them in. Many of them wouldn't, but the ones that did lost track of them and they're back at the war. And we know that. Yeah, there's a reason why they were in Gitmo. Right. <laughs> they weren't Boy Scouts. Well, let's. Uh, I do want to move on to at least one more topic if we can uh, cover this. You know, we've we've talked uh, many times on this podcast about the likelihood that the um, that this coronavirus, the Chinese flu, actually was the the product of research going on at that Wuhan uh, lab in China. Um, and, you know, at first when you started talking about this and even when we were talking about it, we had, you know, social media was was taking our podcasts off and um, and certainly, you know, the, the Biden administration and others, Fauci in particular was pushing back. My goodness, you remember that exchange we discussed uh, between uh, Fauci and Rand Paul uh, in the Senate? Well, there's uh, <laughs> more details that just keep coming out about this uh research at the Wuhan lab in China and its connection with this, uh, with this, which this, with this pandemic, which has been devastating to economies and to human life uh, globally. So uh, I know, David, you've been following some of these latest. Could you please uh, update us? Well, what's interesting is that many of you might know Glenn Greenwald, the name, many may not. Glenn Greenwald is a investigative journalist. And in his past life, he's very libertarian-esque. And so he's very much into exposing the secrets of governments and um, understands the threat of the corruptibility of power. And so, for example, he was, you know, he sings the praises of uh, who are the last two uh, whistleblowers, so-called, the traitors, uh, the one guy is in um, some embassy, I forget their names, but um, the two the two big folks that are, one was uh, With the uh, WikiLeaks. in the army and, and uh, released, yeah, the WikiLeaks, right. So, um, and he, he's very much into that. Um, well, he started um, The Intercept, uh, essentially when he 
um, went down into South America to get away from all the the mine the the mine uh, molding that takes place by the media that just was buying into um, all of the intelligence reports and and military reports about the war and so forth because um, essentially he doesn't trust the U.S. intelligence agencies or the or the military um, pronouncements on what's going on. So, uh, but eventually um, he was too hardcore for the intercept and they started going left as o when Obama, Obama was in power. So he ended up leaving his own online journalist uh, organization. And he's a prominent journalist and the intercept was a prominent platform online for this kind of journalism. Well, the intercept apparently decided to do a FOIA, Freedom of Information Act request, on Fauci's NIH and the various organizations that he's involved with and the funding of Wuhan lab and other labs in Wuhan um, by the US government on the COVID virus. And apparently their motivation was to prove that Rand Paul and others who were accusing poor Dr. Fauci of having lied to Congress and the American people about not funding gain of function, that very dangerous type of viral research, virus research, um, was false. In other words, they wanted to debunk the theory that the U.S. had funded. So they did a FOIA. Well, it turns out that when they did the document dump, there are actual um, documents produced by the government of the researchers who were paid millions of dollars, not just $600,000, to do gain-of-function research where the actual research reports and applications indicate that they are doing dangerous COVID research, including gain-of-function on mice that have been humanized. And they point out the danger, the risk of accidental infection so um, we now have hard evidence that Dr. Fauci lied. Now, what they're doing is spinning all this and saying, well, no, we still don't believe it's gain of function. But that's just simply denying the obvious. And um, what's fascinating is that other than a few conservative, libertarian conspiracy outlets, and those are different categories, not the same, um, Mainstream media has just ignored it. It's not happening. But the reality is, out of the Wuhan lab that we're all we all know about, and a second Wuhan lab, um, we have funded gain of function research on COVID viruses. And um, the fact that the intelligence agencies have now come back and said, "Look, China steadfastly refuses to engage in." any cooperative effort to find out the source of the COVID virus. Between these dots and many others that we've talked about on this podcast, um, it is almost beyond Cavill that anyone could argue with a straight face that this virus was not started by human interaction in a lab. The big question for me still remains, was this just an accident? Or was this research being done on, for military purposes by the Chinese government as well? Because remember, these people are doing research. These U.S. and European entities are doing research alongside Communist Party doctors and agencies. So to believe that there's no military aspect, biological weapon aspect to this research would be to blind oneself to what the Chinese government has been doing for years. Yeah, and just uh, for those who are watching the video cast, David, your your uh, internet has been kind of intermittent, so the uh, the video hasn't been matching the audio so much, but the audio has been coming in pretty pretty clearly. Just uh, I'm not, you you probably haven't been able to to pick that up, but. Um, yeah, it, it's, you know, Fauci, and I think if I'm not mistaken, there was a, an email that was released out from like earlier in the in the year, earlier at some point where Fauci um, essentially said, 
yeah, this is risky research, but uh, but it's worth it. Really? You think it's worth it now, uh, <laughs> Fauci? You think it's worth it now? Look at how much this has uh, impacted everybody's lives and in so, so many ways. And, and for me, I mean, me personally, obviously, I spent, you know, four days in the hospital with uh, COVID pneumonia, uh, a little bit nip and tuck whether I was going to make it through. But the, to me, still, the, the, the worst fallout uh, from, this, from all of this COVID-19 is the draconian restrictions on freedom and liberty that now government officials are uh, you know, using this, uh, this public health crisis as an excuse to impose their will upon the wills of, of you know, freedom-loving uh, Americans. You know, some of these in the you know, foreign countries that never really had a full sense of what freedom and liberty meant. America is the beacon of freedom, freedom and liberty. And here you have this, you know, this virus not only devastating our economy and devastating our, uh, you know, our, the, the health, but also in many respects, devastating this, uh, these, you know, these fundamental freedoms, right? It was, uh, and I, if I recall correctly, the, uh, the quote from, um, uh, from Ben Franklin, who made, who essentially said, those who give up, you know, fundamental freedoms for, uh, for temporary safety to deserve neither. Uh, it's a, essentially a, a direct quote, and it's very true. We are surrendering fundamental liberties for this, uh, you know, because in this notion that somehow it's, it's public health and, and public safety. You know, by the way, none of these, these measures that they're imposing upon us seem to ha be having any effect whatsoever. And I don't know if we, it might be worthwhile to segue here because I know we're going to be running. Let me, out let me of just time. pause you, Rob, because I, I do want to come yeah. back to what you said. So yeah. Fauci said in the early days, as Rob pointed out, that yes, it's dangerous, but it's worth it now. But let's unpack that a bit because what we hear from the deep state and what we hear from the left all the time, and even we hear it from the, the moderate right, as it were, the rhino world, that um, science is the end all and be all. So Fauci would say it's worth the risk, you know, science must prevail. But let's keep in mind a couple of things. One, science is not a good. It's not a moral good. It's not, has no moral value whatsoever. Science is a tool. It's like a hammer. A hammer is not good. Now, a hammer can be used for good if you construct a home with it. But it can be used for evil if a criminal uses it to beat you over the head, God forbid, and, and steal your, your money. Science is simply a tool. It has no value. So when someone says, follow the science, that's absurd. You can use science as a tool to understand the world, but science doesn't tell us what Fauci was engaging in when he said, it's dangerous, but it's worth the risk. In other words, the science work is dangerous, but it's with, worth the risk. And what he means to say is if you balance the risk of a virus that goes viral because of an accident or because one of the workers is a bad character and wants to see what'll happen. You know, there's arsonists out there. It happens all the time, people. That that risk, when balanced against the knowledge that science can gain regarding how to develop vaccines and how to respond to pandemics, it's worth the risk. What was he engaging in? That balance of risk versus benefit is not science. That's public policy. That's not science. It's the use of science data to help weigh risk and benefits. But the weighing is simply a human being making a judgment call. And they like to believe that because they have MDs after their name or PhDs, that somehow, and that they've, and they've worked as a bureaucrat in the deep state or a technocrat more properly in the deep state for a decade or two decades or four administrations, right? That's a famous saying. They've worked in four administrations, Republican, Democratic, showing what? That he personally doesn't have biases, that he doesn't have faults and shortcomings, that he can't make mistakes? Of course he can. It's simply a way to say, well, he's not political. Well, that's nonsense. Of course he's political. Just because a technocrat works in Democratic and Republican administration doesn't mean that he doesn't have his own political biases. So when he's making that judgment call, 
He's making a choice on behalf of the government, i.e. society, which is on instead of us as individuals making our own judgment call. Or more properly speaking, instead of our representatives making that call. So when Fauci made the decision to fund that research along with the other technocrats in the deep state, that is a question that a representative from the government, an elected representative, a politician who could be held accountable by the people should have made. And quite likely, because there was already administrative rules and, and laws relating to this kind of gain and function research, should have been done at even a more fundamental level of legislative or administrative rulemaking. So let's not, let's not lose sight of the fact, and as we now segue into the, the various COVID protocols, the vaccine mandates and everything else, that is not science, right? The only thing about vaccines that science is the number of people that get shots, the number of people who are hospitalized, the bad outcomes, um, whatever we know versus those who don't get shots and whatever data is crunched, but it can't tell us whether to mandate a vaccine and um, can't tell us how to do that. Yeah, and, and think about, and let's kind of segue into this uh, vaccine mandate, but I just want to make one point that you were making about, you know, th think about the the power that Fauci had, right, to, to fund this research. And, and it just goes to show you the danger of this bureaucratic, you know, some call it deep state, whatever you want to call it, where you realize that, you know, we, we supposedly have a Republican form of government where we have, you know, representatives that, that are uh, accountable to us. But just take a ride into Washington, D.C. someday and look at the size of the EPA building or any of these other administrative agencies. And there are people in there that are making decisions on issues that we have no idea who they are, nor do they have any really any oversight on these people. It, it is remarkable. We've allowed this government to grow so big that it's, it takes on a life of, its, of itself that we really don't have a measure of, of control. Look at what they did with the, with the whole uh, Trump administration. It's supposed to be his branch, his executive branch, and they were doing everything they could to undermine what he was, uh, what he was trying to do. So let's let me, talk about let me yeah. I, I just raise another very good topic, and I Ping think it's worth, it's worth a drill down. Yeah. When I was a young college student, goodness, now 40 years ago, and a young law student, we still talked about, and papers were still being written about what General Eisenhower warned, President Eisenhower warned when he left office about the military industrial complex. Now, it was corrupted back then, you know, the left used it and the right poo-pooed it, but there's a, there's a legitimate argument that he was making. When you have the higher echelon political generals knowing that when they leave office, they go, when they retire, with their wonderful benefits, they go into the military industrial complex, the private sector, and they interface and relate with and socialize with their dear friends who are still in the Pentagon and still making the procurement decisions and the war decision. And there is a symbiotic relationship that goes back and forth. Now it could be for good and it could be for evil, but remember we're talking about human nature. And that's what Eisenhower was warning against. Now, where else do we see it? We see it in all the government agencies in Rob's and my world, the legal world. So for example, SEC lawyers who review various SEC offerings, et cetera, and those who sue for violations of SEC regs, and that's a very powerful agency because all the big companies are public companies and are regulated by the Securities and Exchange Commission. So those bureaucrats and those lawyers, where do they go after they've cut their teeth typically? They've worked there for 10 years, 15 years. Where do they go? They get a job as a senior partner. They get to skip right over to the senior partner level of the big mega firms that represent the big companies. And what do they do? They interact with their buddies over at the SEC, during litigation, before litigation, because that gives them enormous power. Now, 
what they argue is, well, we're hiring these former SEC officials because they have such knowledge and expertise and they're great lawyers. And that's certainly true in some cases, but it's mostly true that they're being hired for their relationships because relationships biases drive human interaction more than facts in the law. We see it with the judges. Where do judges go when they retire? Well, they either go into mediation and arbitration or oftentimes to the big law firms where they sit as titular heads. They don't actually have to work. They might do some rainmaking, but they're relationship people. The same is true of the deep state. Now, Fauci has said, you know, I'm a lifer. He stayed in power. And there's something to be said for that. But who is he relating with? He's relating to individual friends, colleagues, his co-scientists who have left government and moved either into big farm, pharmaceuticals, big nonprofit research companies like this company that did all that gain of function research. They got the millions of dollars. How did they get all that money? Do you think that Fauci doesn't know the head of that company extremely well? I venture to say that they socialize together. I don't know that, but I would be surprised if they didn't. And when we saw the emails between Fauci and many of the people in the industry and other scientists out there, either in academia or in nonprofit organizations, what did you see? You saw a chit-chat friendliness. Wasn't a highbrow professionalism. It wasn't talking about the risk. It was talking about creating the right narratives about this not being too dangerous. The same kind of biases. And so you have this symbiotic relationship between the deep state technocrats and bureaucrats who have enormous power because they operate behind an anonymous curtain until a pandemic comes and they get to do their press releases like Fauci. But before this pandemic, who knew of Dr. Fauci other than the people that he interacted with? The power brokers, they have this relationship with their colleagues and their friends in other sectors that drive their balancing of the risk and benefit decisions. And that's the danger, that it's not being driven by an objective, factual, scientific analysis of the risk and benefits. It's being driven by, partly by that, but in large part by relationships. Yeah, and thank, I mean, these, these COVID mandates, um, you know, we just saw yesterday Biden come out with this uh, vaccine mandate now for federal employees and businesses of 100 or more uh, in, in, uh, employees. I mean, just, you know, and that no consideration, for example, of people who might have natural immunities, that's never considered. The entire U.S. Postal Service is apparently exempt, the hundreds of thousands of you know, postal workers that, you know, through collective bargaining and unionizing and everything else, you, you just, it, it's, it's remarkable. You know, one thing I want to convey a story because, you know, we're looking at, you know, challenging this. I don't think there's any basis for uh, Biden to issue this, this, you know, this mandate upon these private businesses. One thing to say federal employees, but to have all these uh, private businesses. And I, I, I guarantee you, there's going to be, you know, many, many, many lawsuits that are cropping up all over. And we've been already, you know, people have been asking us to help them out and, and, uh, and so forth. But this, I don't see how this is constitutional in, in any respect whatsoever. But one conversation I had, because I reached out to a former client who runs a big company, 400 plus employees. Um, and I, I love this woman. She's, <laughs> she's an octogenarian with a lot of fire. And her response was, I don't want to give any credibility to what Biden did by even, you know, pretending to f have to file a lawsuit and going into federal court and ask some judge to decide whether or not I have to abide by, you know, what Biden's doing. She said, I'm just not going to abide. I'm not going to do it. And you know what the reality is, and I've had this conversation with, uh, with many people who always want to, you know, want to go run to the court, run to the court. I'm like, why do you want to have, you know, some left-wing judge be the one to decide this? You know, we got to start standing up and pushing back, right? Start doing the Rosa Parks. You know what? I'm not giving up my seat. I'm sorry. What you're asking me to do is unlawful, right? We have to have some large scale civil disobedience 
to this nonsense. We just had like, for example, we just recently had uh, Washtenaw County impose a mask mandate for, you know, for kindergarten through 12th grade for the, to these schools. I mean, think about how absurd that is. Meanwhile, this past Saturday, you know, University of Michigan had their football game at Michigan Stadium. Two of my sons went to the game, you know, 110,000 people. Now, granted, it's outdoors, but if you've ever been to Michigan Stadium or any of these football stadiums, it is shoulder to shoulder, back to back, to think that you're not breathing the same air of 110,000 people in that confined space in the lines going in, the lines going out, the restrooms, the concessions, way more than, you know, in most of these schools that I know, even, you know, some of the Catholic schools we're representing and so forth, you know, the, the desks are spaced out. You might have, you know, 20 kids in a classroom. They keep the social distancing and everything else. 110,000 people jammed into these football stadiums. I'd love to see it. Don't get me wrong. I absolutely love to see it. And I'd love to see this past weekend, the fact that you actually had a sense of normalcy back in place. But these bureaucrats who are issuing these mandates are so out of touch. And don't tell me that it's science that's driving these things because it's not. It's, it's left-wing tyrants who want to control our lives. And not only you know, are we going to be following the lawsuits and doing the part we do, but I urge all our listeners, you guys need to push back and fight back. Tell your school, no way. My kid's not wearing a mask. I heard one parent wrote a letter to the school and said, my kid's not wearing a mask. And if you touch him or do anything to him, I'm going to call the police on you guys. And I'll be in there in a heartbeat. We need to start as a society. We need to start pushing back. Don't just look to these left-wing judges. I'd love to see the, you know, a governor say, you know what? You send any of your OSHA guys in here to mess with the companies that are in my state because I'm the governor of my state. And I'm the one, by the way, that has general police powers, not you, federal government. You start messing with my companies, I'm going to tell my state police to get you guys out of here, right? I, you don't go into any of our companies. They, we need to start pushing back hard in a real, real way that's going to make a difference. This nonsense has to end. Well, I, I would have nothing to add other than to, other than to provide some asterisks for um, our listeners and our audience. <laughs> and that is, um, keep in mind, number one, that when Rob says the federal government has no constitutional power to issue a mask mandate that Biden is claiming. That, vaccine mandate, yeah. Vaccine mandate, rather, that, um, or in fact, a, a mask mandate, and they're talking about both, um, is the reality that the federal government only has certainly, and Rob's gone through this many times on our podcast, only has certain enumerated powers. And the one that they're going to rely on here is the commerce clause, but there's no interstate commerce here to mandate a vaccine. Um, and uh, there's no interstate commerce to mandate a mask. Now they'll try to make the argument, well, it'll affect interstate commerce. And the Supreme Court since the New Deal years in the early 20th century has corrupted the Commerce Clause. But thankfully under, the, under Obamacare, the Supreme Court did recognize it has limits. And if you recall, the mandate to buy this insurance was found unconstitutional under the Commerce Clause and the escape hatch was John Roberts said, well, it's a taxing power, which of course it wasn't. But having said that, the states have the police power to protect our health, welfare, and safety. And so state governors um, would have far more authority um, to issue these kinds of mandates, but not the federal government. Now, with that in mind, I think Rob's emotional appeal is exactly right. As we've mentioned here, we are in a non-kinetic civil war and simply running to the courts is not going to be enough. But I would tell our client uh, and, and friend of, of American Freedom Law Center that um, while we understand not wanting to run to some leftist judge to even give them the cover of legitimacy, the reality is what would happen? Well, the government will issue this unconstitutional mandate and they're gonna find people $15,000 per occurrence. So it's employers with more than 100 employees. And I happen to represent a private employee here in Southern California as general counsel, and they have 600 employees, give or take. And um, so we have to deal with this. And what's going to happen? that $15,000 penalty each occurrence. 
and how they measure an occurrence. It could be phenomenal amounts of money. And then they'll come in and they'll get an order to shut you down. And keep in mind that the state authorities and the local authorities are going to issue similar rules. So if the federal rule doesn't apply, they can come in because that's what they did under the CDC guidances, right? The CDC would issue these guidances because at least under Trump, they recognized that all they could do was issue guidances and the governors and the various city and county authorities simply use those guidances to issue state level mandates. So it's not going to be so easy, but I agree that the first order of business ought to be mass civil disobedience. And the second order of business will be in the courts, whether you want as an offensive challenge or a defense to the to the the injunction that they've or the administrative order that they've placed and shut you know put a lock on your doors. So it's you're going to have to come into our arena because that's where this non-kinetic civil war is being fought in large measure. Um, and it's what we at American Freedom Law Center do. Um, and I dare say as effectively as it can be done. I don't claim that we can beat the momentum of the progressives in every way, but we've certainly won our share of battles. Yeah, Part of I, that, I mean, we just mentioned something because you'll find yeah. it of interest. Um, clients of mine, principals of this company that has 600 employees, their young child went to a very good public school in a very wealthy community here in Southern California. And with all the mandates and the critical race theory being taught to their young, uh, you know, fourth grader, third grader, um, they turned to Rob and, you know, asked because Rob family has homeschooled all of their 12 children. And I assume many of your 12 grandchildren are going to be homeschooled as well. Um, all of them so far. Yeah. So, um, but they looked into that, but they figured, you know, they're running this big privately held business. So they put their child, took their child out of the public school and they told them because you taught this critical race theory to my child um, at that age without even telling the parents and the public school officials simply thumb their nose at them. They put them in the child into a private school, private Catholic school, in fact, but the private Catholic school is, has got the vaccine mandate or twice a week testing. So they yanked them out, this child out, and the child is now homeschooling using the same program, Rob, that you recommended. I saw all the books on the table the other day when I was in their home. And they've just decided it's worth it. If one of them has to be home to, to work with their child, they're going to do it. This child is bright and self-starter. Um, so it'll be a lot easier than some parents. But that's the kind of behavior. Take the children out of the public school system at the very least. No child should be in a public school system based upon what they teach and given these mandates. And you're gonna find the private school is gonna be no better. And um, if, if that were one result, look at the ramifications. If, if massive parents took, massive numbers of parents took their children out and started to homeschool them, and uh, maybe Rob can put up a link to his homeschooling um, uh, course. The fact is, is that that would devastate the National Teachers Union, which is one of the most powerful progressive critical race theory, vaccine mask mandating lobbyist groups in the country with enormous power. And that would have repercussions across the social fabric if the public school system started to collapse. And it would allow charter schools and others to really step into that void and make a difference. And for the inner city children, because that's what they're going to go, oh, you're destroying the education. No, no. Um, take that monies you spend on public schools and provide it for tuition for these children and let them develop their own private school systems or their own homeschooling um, and all sorts of other mechanisms, right? It doesn't even have to be a school. You could have people who set up a kind of contract homeschooling 
where someone with the time is willing to go in and put five or 10 children together from neighborhood homes and go into a, you know, rotate around the homes and use the homeschooling program to teach these children. I mean, there's all kinds of market possibilities. Right. Well, you know, the thing with, uh, with civil disobedience, you know, often comes penalties, right? And so, if, yeah, if you're, if you're going to reject this, uh, this attempt by Biden, you, you might get penalized, and then you challenge it at that point in court. You know, uh, when Rosa Parks, you know, refused to give up her seat, she was violating a law. Uh, Martin Luther King wrote that famous letter from the Birmingham jail. Well, he was in the Birmingham jail because of civil disobedience. So sometimes it, it's, you know, it's going to take, you know, p- perhaps some punishments to, uh, you know, to push back and to change this tide of these leftists who just keep wanting to control our lives. So, um, but yeah, so I, I just think it's going to take a lot of, uh, a lot of people standing up and, and, and doing things, taking action and not just relying on the courts to, to, uh, to resolve this. Uh, and, you know, even the civil rights movement is a good example. You had, you know, Marshall who was always pushing for just do things more peacefully and in the courts. And you had Martin Luther King who was like, let's bring it into their, into their homes and on the, you know, the television sets and let's protest, let's march. And it was a combination of those two things that really, uh, you know, gave the success in, in many respects to, uh, to the civil rights movement. So there's some lessons to be learned there. Well, that's, that is all the time we, we have today. I think we actually probably went a little bit over than what we normally do, but we always look forward to our discussions and, and we thank you all for joining us. As you know, our video casts are posted on our Rumble and YouTube channels and our podcasts are posted on Spotify and Stitcher and wherever you can you know, find podcasts. If you like the content, please follow us and uh, please spread the word. And uh, also, as I've mentioned many times, you know, we are a nonprofit public interest law firm recognized by the IRS as a 501c3 organization. All of the work that we do is uh, pro bono for the good, so we don't charge for our legal services. Rather, we rely on generous donations from people like you. If you'd like to support our work, you can do so safely uh, on our website at AmericanFreedomLawCenter.org. All donations are tax deductible to the full extent of the law. Uh, We thank you again, and uh, as always, may God bless you, and may he continue to bless America. Amen.